Welcome to Tomorrow's World. Most people have heard of the Bible and its leading figure, Jesus Christ, but few understand his message. Much of the world celebrates his birth on the 25th of December. They mourn his death and celebrate his reported resurrection on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Those who claim to be his followers number over two billion. Yet professing Christianity has long forgotten the message of its founder. Have you? Don't be so sure. Whatever that message was that Jesus preached, it was a powerful message because the religious leaders of his day were so upset with him that they stirred up his own countrymen and put him to death by nailing him to a stake. Why such hatred? Generally speaking, people refer to Jesus Christ's message as the gospel. They talk about gospel music, the message of the gospel, and gospel preaching. Most professing Christians believe they know what that gospel is, but do they really? Do you? Whether you claim to be a Christian or not, prepare to be surprised, because the message Jesus brought to mankind is not what most people think. Stay tuned. Once again, a warm welcome to Tomorrow's World, where on today's program you may be shocked to see what the Bible actually says is the message, the forgotten message that Jesus Christ brought to this world. The word gospel is an old English word that means good news, and indeed his message is good news. So what is that good news? Many believe that the gospel is a message about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And while that is certainly an important and an essential part of it, that is far from the complete message. Consider this. What message did Jesus preach for three and one half years prior to his death and resurrection? Was that not also the gospel? Do you realize the New Testament scriptures tell us over and over again precisely what that message was? But sadly, few have ever heard one single sermon preached on the subject. You, my friends, can know what that message is if you are willing to read the Bible and believe what it says. For example, Mark tells us what it was that Jesus preached at the very beginning of his three and a half year ministry, and we read this in the first chapter of the book named after Mark. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now after John was put in prison, 
Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There we have it. The forgotten good news Jesus brought was that of the kingdom of God. And in a few minutes, we will explore precisely what that kingdom is. Another gospel writer, in this case Luke, tells us that Jesus claimed that the message he was sent to preach was the kingdom of God. Let's see that in Luke, the fourth chapter, beginning in verse 42. Now when it was day, he, that is Jesus, departed and went into a deserted place. And the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. This man Jesus was not the man many people think he was, and his message was not the message many think it to be. When I was 11 or 12 years of age, someone asked my Sunday school teacher a question. Why did Jesus speak in parables? The teacher explained that Jesus' audience in that day was made up of farmers, fishermen, and shepherds. And so he spoke in language that they could understand. Perhaps you've heard this explanation as well. It certainly made sense to me and to the others in my class. After all, Many people Jesus preached to in that day did indeed tend sheep, catch fish, and farm the land. The problem is that answer is totally wrong. You see, my friends, Jesus' own disciples asked him the very same question, and he gives us his reason for speaking in parables. So do we want to believe my Sunday school teacher or the one who actually spoke the parables? Notice the question and the answer in the book of Matthew, chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Instead of making the meaning of his message understandable to everyone, Jesus tells us the reason he spoke in parables was to hide the meaning from the majority. So says your Bible. Why do we never hear anyone explaining this? And why do we hear so little, if anything, about the kingdom of God? This forgotten message that Jesus preached is the subject of parable after parable. In Mark 4, verse 26, Jesus begins one of the parables this way. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. In verse 30, he introduced the parable of the mustard seed with these questions. To what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? Jesus began with 12 disciples that he called apostles. After a three and one half year ministry marked by mighty miracles and culminating in his resurrection from the dead, there were only about 120 true believers. But it would not end there. News of Christ's resurrection from the dead and the message of the kingdom of God spread. By the time the apostle Paul arrived in Macedonia, the apostles were accused of turning the world upside down, 
as it tells us in Acts the 17th chapter and verse 6. Jesus talked about the kingdom so much that people mistakenly thought that he would set it up at that time. They understood it to be a literal kingdom, but they didn't understand the time or how it would come about. Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore he said, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Then he went on to explain that he called his servants to him, and he gave them units of money with which to trade until he returned to give out rewards and to set up the kingdom. I'm going to come back to this important parable a little later in the program, but first let's notice exactly what this forgotten kingdom is. Any kingdom must have the following. First of all, a king and subjects. Secondarily, territory or location. And third, laws to govern the kingdom. In the remainder of this program, we're going to look at each of these requirements and see how they explain the good news that Jesus proclaimed. So let's look at element number one. Every kingdom needs a king and he needs subjects. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus was brought before Pilate, who was the Roman governor of Judea at the time. Accusations had been made, and in John, the 18th chapter, verse 33, we learn from Pilate the focus of these accusations. He asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Now let's notice Jesus' answer in verses 36 and 37. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world. Without any doubt, Jesus proclaimed himself to be the king of this kingdom. It was prophesied before his birth that he was born to rule. And after his birth, wise men came bearing gifts to honor the newborn king. Many of the accusations against Jesus revolved around this claim to be a king. Yet people misunderstood when his kingdom would be set up. After his death and resurrection from the dead, he continued to proclaim the same message, and his disciples could not help but wonder if he would set up his kingdom at that time. This is evident from Acts, the first chapter. He also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus had no intention of setting up the kingdom during this age. All the wars fought in the name of Christ or by professing Christians to conquer for Christ have been carnal, worldly wars. It is not our place to force conversion on others. Nor is it proper for true Christians to attempt the overthrow of countries or governments. 
On the contrary, we are instructed to hold leaders in high esteem and to be subject to them. As it tells us in Romans, the 13th chapter, beginning in verse 1, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. My friends, this is not always easy to do. But if we believe the Bible, if we live by faith, and if we obey its instructions, we know that our lives will be better in the long run as a result. Perhaps the most famous portion of George Frederick Candle's Messiah is the Alleluia Course where the phrase, King of Kings and Lord of Lords is repeated time and again. The refrain comes from Revelation, the 19th chapter and verse 16. But what does it mean? You may be surprised. That Jesus is to be king of the kingdom is without doubt. But if Jesus is the king, who are the kings that he is the king of? This, my friends, is where the message of the good news of the kingdom of God really becomes exciting. What I'm going to give you here is something that you've probably never heard before. Yet it's all right here and the pages of the Bible for anyone to see. If you would like to discover more about how this topic impacts your life, visit us online at www.lcgcanada.org to read our featured literature free of charge. The prophet Ezekiel explains that the day is coming in the future when the house of Israel and the house of Judah will no longer be two nations but one. And it is in this context that Ezekiel tells us that the resurrected King David will rule over them as their future king. You can read this in the 37th chapter of Ezekiel. David my servant shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd, they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. When Ezekiel wrote this, David had been dead nearly 400 years. It is evident that Ezekiel was predicting an event another 2,600 years in the future. This refers to a time in the future, the time of Christ's second coming and the resurrection of the dead. The prophet Jeremiah confirms David's role after Christ's return in Jeremiah the 30th chapter and in verse 9. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So here is what we have. Jesus Christ will be king over all the earth, and in the resurrection King David will be king over all of Israel. But the Bible reveals others that will be kings under Christ at His return. Note that there are 12 tribes of Israel, and interestingly, there are also 12 apostles. Is it just possible that each of the apostles will rule over a different tribe under the oversight of King David? This is exactly what we learn from Matthew, the 19th chapter, verse 28. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, 
judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But that's not all. Remember that Jesus gave a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and some thought that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. In this parable, he likened himself to a nobleman going into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. But before leaving, he gave a unit of money to each of the servants with instructions to increase its value by trading. This is symbolic of God's spirit that he gives to his servants who must then multiply the fruits of that spirit. Notice the reward given to those who increase this investment. Then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you are faithful in a very little. Have authority over ten cities. For the man whose mina gained five minas, we read, Likewise he said to him, You also be over five cities. So the scriptures are clear. Jesus Christ will be king over all the earth. Under him will be the resurrected King David. David in turn will oversee the twelve apostles who will rule over each of the twelve tribes of Israel. And others will be given responsibilities over varying numbers of cities. This is a pattern that we see for all the nations of the earth. So we see who the rulers of the kingdom are going to be. But of course, a king without subjects is no king at all. So who will live under these rulers? The prophet Zechariah answers this question in the 14th chapter. In the early part of this chapter, he describes a tremendous battle that is going to take place when all nations of the earth send soldiers to fight against the returning Christ. It will be no contest, but contrary to what many people think, God is not going to destroy all life from the earth. Zechariah informs us that those human beings who survive this climactic battle at the end of the age will live on into what we know as the millennium, the 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ. Now beginning in verse 16, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So now we know who the king of all the earth will be. Who will be the kings ruling under him? And where the subjects come from? While the kings are all resurrected spirit beings, the subjects are all physical flesh and blood human beings who will have the opportunity to prove during their lifetimes that they too want immortality. The first element every kingdom needs is a king and subjects. Now that we have discovered who the king of kings and their subjects are, let us now look at a second element needed for a kingdom, and that is territory. The Bible is equally clear about this subject. Notice again from the 14th chapter of Zechariah, this time verse 9, where it says, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. Over all the earth. 
Notice Revelation, the fifth chapter, and verse 10. Because here we read, And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. The prophet Micah, in the fourth chapter, in verse 1, speaks of the following. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His paths. But the prophet doesn't stop here. He goes on to show that real, genuine, lasting peace will be the result of Christ's return. While man does not know the way to peace today, he will learn the way to peace in the future, but only under the guidance of the returned Christ. Micah continues his prophecy by showing that he shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Historically, two of the greatest enemies of Israel have been Egypt and Assyria. The prophet Isaiah, in the 19th chapter, beginning verse 23, tells us that these nations, Israel, Egypt, and Assyria, will at that time live in harmony under God's blessings. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt, and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. My friends, the kingdom of God is the forgotten message. It is not up in heaven as many assume, but is right here on this earth. It's a real kingdom that is coming at Christ's return. As we have seen, the first element a kingdom must have is a king, a chief ruler, and his subjects. The second element a kingdom must also have is territory, a place for the king and his subjects. Now let's look at the third element needed for a kingdom, and that is laws to govern that kingdom. Every kingdom and society needs laws to govern behavior. Sadly, many professing Christians seem to be against the concept of law and wish to speak of grace or forgiveness only. But what need is there for grace and forgiveness if there is not a law? Law defines sin. It sets boundaries around what is right and defines unacceptable behavior. Children need laws to know right from wrong, and so do adults. No society can operate outside of law. The Bible connects the time of Christ's rule on this earth with the laws that will be taught at that time. The first few verses of the second chapter of Isaiah 
parallel the words of Micah. Notice beginning in verse 3. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And notice this, He will teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law. As we have shown on past programs, God's law is a law of love. The first four of the Ten Commandments teach us how to show love toward God, and the last six teach us the foundation of love toward neighbor. This is what Jesus meant when He told the lawyer, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So let us now review. Jesus Christ is to be the King of the kingdom. The servants of Christ who will be raised from the dead will be rulers under Him and they will collectively rule over physical human beings. The territory, the place of this kingdom is this earth. The law governing this kingdom will be the law of God with the Ten Commandments as its foundation. This is the forgotten message. Yes, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is part of the good news brought to us in the Bible. But so is also the message that Christ announced for three and a half years prior to His death. One must wonder why this vital part of the biblical message is no longer proclaimed. If you'd like to learn more about Jesus Christ and His message, please go to our website that will be shown momentarily and read or download our booklet, Do You Believe the True Gospel? And be sure to come back next week at the same time and station to learn more good news of the Kingdom of God and the soon coming King of that Kingdom, Jesus Christ. Until then, goodbye, friends. If you would like to discover more about how this topic impacts your life, visit us online at www.lcgcanada.org to read our featured literature free of charge. The preceding program has been produced by the Living Church of God.